Our scripture reading today is Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. As the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for gathering your people here in your place on this holy Sunday. Let us have open minds, ears to hear, as Pastor Grant teaches us from the Old Testament times, and let us just um, take in those lessons that pass over from Old Testament to our life here on earth, and let us be willing servants to to heed your word and to, to take action as we go out and spread your word to to all the people in this community and the world and beyond. Bless Pastor Grant as he brings his message. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Have a seat. Grab a Bible. Daniel 1. And I wonder if I could just start by rattling this off. This is today's sermon. Destruction, dominance, culture, comfort, time, and identity. Destruction, dominance, culture, comfort, time, and identity. You know, knowing your enemy's playbook doesn't necessarily make it where you won't feel the effects of it. You might have the, you know, the other team's playbook and know every play, but you still have to have a strategy for how to... How to 
you know, protect yourself and how to thrive in the middle of that. But this, so today's message is really part one. We're going to have to get through next week. You know, how long did you really want to be here today? You know, um, uh, today we will look at some of the enemy strategies against God's people. And then next week we will look at how these faithful friends, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived and thrived in the middle of the enemy's attack. On one hand, on the passage that Carol just read, well, here's another thing. This story only matters in light of Ephesians 6. Because on one hand, we are seeing a very specific strategy of an ancient king, Nebuchadnezzar II. He was a real guy. You can read about him in probably the year 605 BC. And if that's all this is, how much could we really learn by it? It's more in the just like Bible nerd category. Hey, all Bible nerds, you want to do Bible nerd stuff, learn to pronounce the words right and go, well, I heard that this other guy thinks, well, that's Bible nerd stuff and I'm one of them. That's great. It's fun. I like it, but it's pretty rare to enjoy that. And, and it, it, I don't know that it makes a big difference in our lives to learn Nebuchadnezzar's strategies in the year 605. But on the other hand, what's striking about this story is how timeless it feels. There's something universal about the behavior of evil. There's something universal and timeless about the behavior of oppression. And there is also something universal about the behavior of faithful followers of God. Faithfulness has looked the same and will continue to look the same. So while Nebuchadnezzar is the adversary in Daniel 1, we shouldn't look at him as the source of the problem. Did you hear that? Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely the problem. We want, it would be great if the people of God were so faithful to God that, that, that he would have protected Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar would have lost battles. Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely the problem. But Nebuchadnezzar is not the source of the problem, and that's a big distinction. Rather, we need to remember the principle that we learn in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the powers and principalities and the forces of darkness in the heavenly places. Paul, under Roman opposition, as all of his friends in Ephesus are talking about, well, shall we go get Rome? Paul goes, hey, we don't struggle against flesh and blood. That's a symptom. That's not the source. So while Nebuchadnezzar is the adversary in Daniel 1, he's not the source of the problem. And the strategies of evil haven't changed. We can learn a lot about those cosmic powers of darkness that Paul is going to talk about a few hundred years later in Ephesians by reading Daniel 1, and then applying what we learn and what we see in the forces of evil, even in our time. You know, we don't spend a lot of time talking about forces of evil here at Lighthouse. We um, try to be as practical as we can, and and, but there is no being a practical, uh, down-on-the-ground, faithful Christian without understanding that we have a very real enemy, that our problems are not just flesh and blood, that we're not just one more good guy away from all of our problems being solved, and there's no such thing as a bad guy in our world who was the source of the problem all in and of himself. There are spiritual forces in heavenly places working to keep God's people depressed and dead. 
And we even might pause here at the beginning and go, hey, I thought that God was the one behind this. I spent a lot of time last week introducing Daniel. Isn't, aren't, um, it wasn't the evil forces that sent the people into exile. Second Kings, Daniel, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, they all are very clear that it was God who sent the Babylonians. Wave after wave of invader, you remember? And then God gave. It was right here in, right here in the first part of Daniel that God gave um, Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. That, that seems pretty clear. So how does this work? Well, I will remind you that the people of Israel, the people of Judah, that southern kingdom, capital of Jerusalem, had been experiencing or participating in volitional evil for centuries. They had been choosing evil on their own. They had been worshiping all of these false gods. Remember, we read really gross stuff last week. We read that the guy on the throne in Jerusalem sacrificed his own son, participated in all kinds of witchcraft and whatnot, just really gross pagan stuff. And they had been doing this for a very long time. And so one way to look at it would be that God gave them over to the very powers they had been worshiping. And it's not that far-fetched. I mean, that sounds almost like, are, you know, are we talking about like a fantasy novel now? Are we, talking about like, are we ta still talking about the Bible? But it's not that far-fetched. Maybe a modern way to say it would be greed will consume you. You worship greed and greed will consume you. It'll wreck your life. It's a way we look at all kinds of addiction. You give yourself to something that is not God. You give yourself to hate and bitterness. And hate and bitterness will wreck your life. You give yourself to selfishness. You give yourself to material stuff. You give yourself to an earthly person in worship. And it'll consume you. The people of Israel had given themselves to the powers of evil for century, and now God is giving them to those same world powers. So, you know, my hope for us today is that we would grow in alertness, that we would grow in, you know, be alert. We need more alerts. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Stupid. We need to be aware. We need to not grow weary in doing good. We need to press on so that we might obtain that for which Christ has laid hold of us. We need to not kind of go through this world thinking that we're on neutral ground. Rather, we have an enemy that opposes us. And until we kind of understand that we have an enemy that opposes us, it's pretty hard to understand how victorious a life in Christ could be. Because while we have an enemy, we have a Savior who's better and who saves his people time and time and time again and ultimately has resurrected, conquered death, and we have nothing to worry about, but it would be dumb for us to be foolish between here and heaven. So maybe we err when we feel the effects of evil in this world and we shrink back. Fear not. The world's full of evil. That's right. There's no need for us to be afraid. In Christ, we don't respond to evil with fear. In Christ, we don't respond to evil with compromise, that we would snuggle up to the gods of the culture. We also don't give in to evil by fighting evil on its own terms with violence and hate and, and uh, anger, but rather we remain people of prayer and kindness and love. 
we respond by turning the other cheek. We respond with prayer. We respond with kindness. We respond with love of self. We respond with love of enemy. We respond with love of neighbor. But it's still good to be aware of the enemy's strategies. Also, before I just go, here's the six strategies. It's wrong at the beginning of Daniel, as we set out on this journey, it would be wrong to only see divine punishment without divine grace and mercy. This is certainly a story of divine punishment. The people have been choosing evil for a very long time, and they are being exiled. We spent a lot of time talking about that and what exile meant to them and what exile should still mean to us last week. But the pun- in punishment, God is never only doing one thing. There's always more things going on. Because God is the mighty judge, and God is love. God is a redeemer by nature. In the immutable unity of God, there cannot be, there never has been, and there never will will be separated the grace of God from the judgment of God, from the character of God, from the perfection of God. In fact, 70 years from this story, this story is pretty dark, 70 years from now, there's going to be a building project started in Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the temple and build the wall. And there's going to be like this faithful remnant that's going to try really hard to to be the faithful Israel that they've always known they should be. That wouldn't have happened without exile. Not only that, but can I remind you, can I give a spoiler for a few weeks from now? This is the story of Nebuchadnezzar's salvation. Nebuchadnezzar and Darius both these pagan kings are going to write poems about how God, the God of Daniel, Yahweh, is the most high God and everybody should serve him because he's obviously higher and bigger and greater than any of these other gods. Now that had to happen through the suffering of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is again proof that evil is real. But evil is impotent before God. But it would be foolish for us to not be aware. So, you know, I'll say this probably in weeks to come, but every exile is potentially a missionary. If we live in some ways as exiles in our culture, we talked about this last week that, that, yeah, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, but I wake up every day in this culture that is opposed to God. Well, what's my role? I should pick up arms and blog about it. No, I should be a missionary about it. So this week, as we look at these strategies, these oppressive forces of evil have used and still do used and still do use, let's not be discouraged But rather, let's understand the enemy's playbook so we can stand firm. You remember that Ephesians 6 goes on. Ephesians 6 is going to be the point of VBS even. It's what we're going to teach our kids this week, is that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the powers of evil in the heavenly places. So stand firm and put on the armor of God. So stand in truth. So here are these six strategies, not things to fear, but things to see with our eyes open. Daniel is evidence that these attacks can be endured. We can put on the full armor of God. We can be successful. We can thrive in the middle of a a culture that's opposed to God. God is stronger. We're going to be fine. But it would be foolish to not know what's going on. So first, destruction. Verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
Have you ever felt like your life was under siege? Like, I don't know if I, 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 have, I have like a page of notes. I'm going to say some stuff, but I don't know if I have to say anything more. You guys know what it's like for the spiritual forces of evil to find a way to make your life feel under siege. This is the most obvious. Nebuchadnezzar just shows up and wrecks the place. Actually, what happened is Nebuchadnezzar, you remember Jerusalem, Israel, Judah is almost insignificant on the world stage at this point. They're a vassal state for Egypt. Egypt is the power in the region, but Babylon is on the rise. So way up north, well above Jerusalem, uh, Babylon wins a war uh, against Egypt and Pharaoh Necho and his allies. So it's, you know, it's a, a bunch of countries against a bunch of countries, but Babylon at the head uh, and Babylon wins. And so now from way up in Turkey, I think, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is chasing Pharaoh Necho and the Egyptian forces all the way back down to Egypt. He's like just war stuff. He's just tracing them back down. But as they, on their way, they run right through Jerusalem. And as they run right through Jerusalem, they run right through Jerusalem. There it's, Jerusalem is a, is a capital that is under Egyptian control, and so Nebuchadnezzar does what needs to be done to make sure that it's no longer under Egyptian control, but under Babylonian control. So Jerusalem goes from an evil group of gods down south to an evil group of gods a little to the east. The siege started about 605, which is likely when Daniel and the first group of exiles were taken to Babylon. But there were three waves of exiles, three waves of destruction. 605, kind of the best and brightest, got taken to Babylon. 597, there was another wave. And by 586, if you're going to remember one date from the Old Testament, 586 is the date. And that is when Jerusalem is completely destroyed, the temple is broken down, and the rest of the exiles end up either just being slaughtered or taken to Babylon as slaves. Waves of destruction, increasing brutality. Satan loves death. Scott Peck said that evil is any force that destroys life or liveliness. Hey, Christians, we're not immune to that, are we? Now, don't get me wrong. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We're in no ultimate danger, but you felt these effects. And it's easy to respond, not with faithfulness, but with anger. It's easy to respond by crying out, God, how could you? It's easy to respond by, by with, with either fear or anger or running away or fight or flight kicks in. It is the hardest thing to go, God, I just trust you. This is still a strategy that we're going to see. Human suffering transcends geography and time, and maybe you felt that destruction in your life. It hasn't been a military siege, but you know the feeling of destruction, death, broken relationships, financial burdens that feel overwhelming. This is why we need a Savior. Just like in Daniel's time, destruction is part of the human experience. We need to be aware so we can know that it is not proof that God is failing, but rather it is something that God's people have thrived through before. Along with destruction comes dominance. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And then he put them in his treasury of his God over in Babylon. And then the king commanded uh, Ashpenaz, chief of eunuchs. That's not a job I want. The, he's the chief of eunuchs is that guy. Hey, he must have been grouchy all the time. <laughs> but to go bring 
the young best people. Physical destruction is one way to send a message, but Nebuchadnezzar doesn't stop there, and neither do the forces of evil in our time. It's almost jarring to read. God gave Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. You know, uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who's writing a little bit before this, actually calls the nations that rule Israel, the, the conquering nations, um, Israel's foster fathers. That there's going to be judgment on Babylon. This is not a permanent, ba Babylon is not going to be the permanent uh, ruler of Jerusalem. Rather, this is something that God is using for a time. And Nebuchadnezzar has a choice how he is going to govern these people that God has given into his hands. And if he does poorly, he will be punished. And he is in just a few years. But God gives and Nebuchadnezzar takes. First, it says he takes some of the vessels in the temple used to sacrifice to Yahweh. I want you to see how Nebuchadnezzar is replacing himself, is replacing Yahweh with himself in the lives of these people. You don't need to sacrifice. I'm going to take the utensils from the temple. You don't need them anymore. You're not going to sacrifice to Yahweh. Rather, I'm going to bring them. We're going to do things my way now. And he doesn't put them in the temple of his pagan god. No, he puts them in the treasury. They're just trophies. It's just a statement that my god is winning and your god is losing. The god that most likely is is, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar says his winning is Marduk. And uh, Marduk, um, when the Greeks showed up, they said, oh, we know that guy, that's Zeus. And when the Romans showed up, they were like, no, we know that guy, it's Jupiter. It's the same forces of evil. I don't know what we call him now. Maybe we call him pride. Maybe we call him self but the same forces of evil at work in every culture. And sometimes it does feel like the bad guys are winning or the idols are winning. You know, you might hear something about, oh, church attendance is going down, and you might go, oh, no. Jesus is on the run. But we shouldn't, um, this dominance thing, it, we shouldn't take it lightly. No, sometimes it does feel like to choose Jesus is to choose the side that is on the underside of culture. In fact, that's the way it's felt for most of human history, most of Christian history. And then the language for bringing the exiles is very similar. Bring some of the utensils from the temple and bring some of the people. Not just any people. No, bring the royal and noble people. We want people, the, in the first wave, Nebuchadnezzar says, bring me the people who know how to act like they've been somewhere. Bring me people who can handle a royal court. Bring me people who know how to stand up tall and, and speak in a, in, a, in a good, proper accent. People who are young, give me from that class of people, the ruling class, give me the, the, the young people who can still be trained. Not only that, give me people who are young and without blemish. You know, the other places that word without blemish is used is with the sacrifices in, in uh, Israel and also with the priests of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar is building a pagan priesthood. And he wants to use the young and best and brightest in Israel to do it. 
Make sure they're skilled in wisdom, he says. I, I, I want people who can think. I, I'm, we need philosophers. We need, uh, you know, debaters. We need people who, who, who have some skills. Endowed with knowledge. Give me people who have a good education. I want the, you know, I, I want the Harvard grads. I want the people who are at MIT in their second year of MIT. Bring those guys who understand learning, who are competent leaders. The message from Nebuchadnezzar, the message from the forces of evil are not just I'm able to destroy you, but are very much I've got your best and brightest. I'm their leader now. There's a making the people of God second class citizens. And this is still something that I think we have to be aware of. It's still a strategy that, that, that um, evil uses, that the youngest and the best are frequently the targets of temptation and destruction. Youth ministry matters. Children's ministry matters. And there's certainly utility in what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. These young people will be, will, he will raise them up to be leaders in his court. And as he conquers, uh, and this is happening, you know, from, from people of all the lands that Nebuchadnezzar is conquering. So now he will have people who look like Jews and still speak the Jewish language and know the Jewish customs and yet now are well-versed and feel fully Babylonian. So when people come in waves to be assimilated into Babylon, they will be their head figure or he can send them back as rulers on, uh, on um, Nebuchadnezzar's behalf back to Judah. It might be that the best emissaries of the culture are young handsome, beautiful, and successful. Which leads us to culture. I wonder if we wouldn't even look at these as, as Nebuchadnezzar going, give me the, who's hot on TikTok right now? Give me that guy. Face space, Tic Tacs, you know what I'm talking about. Give me, give me who's the celebrity that everybody will be like, hey, if that guy puts on a hat, we're all going to go buy that hat. Give me the best and brightest. Give me the influencers. Give me the people. This is who I want. Culture. Verse 4 says, and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Why, why not just the language? Why the literature? Because we are people that live in stories. We live by stories. We all are the main character in a story that we are living Along with destruction and dominance comes indoctrination. Not just the Babylonian language, but the Babylonian literature, the story. Every culture has a story, and which culture you believe, what stories you are living, will have a huge impact on how we live, how we feel, whether we have value. Look, these guys had grown up forever, like, hey, we are the people, and, and a few of these are faithful. Like, I think there's a whole bunch of, of, of people who, uh, who are in exile who haven't been faithful to Yahweh, but we have at least four who are very faithful to Yahweh, and their story has been, Yahweh is the one that brought us out of Egypt and he is the most high God and he is the one we serve and we are his people and we are a light to the nations. This is the story. This gives me identity. And so Nebuchadnezzar wants to say, no, let me teach you a whole new story. And you and I need to pay attention to that because you and I too are living in a pretty amazing story, the death, is, the death is conquered, that the tomb is empty, that we don't have to fear the, whatever the world brings at us, that we have hope, that we have a future. So let's not get sucked into the story of anger. 
an outrage. But every bit of culture is telling you a story. Every novel, every podcast. There's the American story. I don't know, I didn't do enough work trying to figure out what the American story exactly would be, but it's something about picking yourself up by your bootstraps and rugged individualism and something, isn't it? Maybe I'm wrong. Work it out at lunch. (laughs) Maybe you grew up in an academic family where the story was what the good life means is getting good grades and achieving. Maybe you you grew up in a sports family where the good life meant 2.0s and touchdowns. That's what we need. That's the good life. Maybe you grew up in a family with the arts and the good life means your world is decorated with beautiful sounds and smells and, 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 you know, paintings. But we all have a story that tells us what makes us valuable, tells us what our mission will be. It's the story that we latch onto that we might know that we are doing well and that things are going to be okay. So Nebuchadnezzar says, bring me their best and brightest and let me teach them to be Chaldeans. Chaldeans is shorthand for Babylonian. It's the the upper class of of Babylonian life. Bring me the best and brightest, and we're going to tell them there's a better way to live, and it's the Babylonian way. I know I've told you this story before. I don't know if I mentioned that I've been to Ethiopia. Um, (laughs) For those of you who are relatively new, I've been one place. It's Ethiopia, and so I tell stories all the time. And it was a very long time ago. It was like 15 years ago. But we were down in Afar and, and um, with, the, you know, these, these folks who were newly believers, just this whole tribe, brand new to the gospel, and it had represented years and years and years and years of faithful missions work and translation work and, and, and sorrow and struggle and the fruit. We're, we're, I, we got so lucky. We're there like seeing the fruit bloom, you know, uh, ripen. And... Um, the, the leader of this tribe who's an aging man and he's sitting kind of holding court and telling stories and, and, um, and the missionary tells a Bible story and then the elder repeats it, the leader of the tribe repeats it to everybody and then he says, I want to live long enough so these stories are the Afar stories. What story are you living? Because culture is telling you all kinds of stories. Every TV show, every book, every podcast, every newscast, what is it that matters? We need to be people who say, this is my story. This is how I know that I'm doing right. This is how I know that there's hope. This is my story. I live according to this story. And here's the thing about the Babylonian story, and I think there's an American, you know, analogy here. Um, The culture that these folks were learning was awesome. Like, Jerusalem had been getting its tail kicked for centuries. Jerusalem was, we would call it a third world nation at this point. And then they get taken to Babylon. Babylon, at its height, was gorgeous. They had, they had... uh, Archimedes screw? Is that the the thing? They were getting water uphill. 
They were, had philosophy. They were astronomers. They had the most accurate calendar. They were scientists. Babylon was great. These guys must have walked into Babylon going, oh my gosh, I could get used to this. What do I have to do? I just got to live like a Babylonian and all this could be mine? Do you remember Jesus being taken up to the tall peak and saying, and Satan telling him, just bow down and all this can be yours? That is part of the story that we're being told all the time. Just live like an American and all this can be yours. Just forget about this. Or maybe compromise, maybe a little of that, a little of this. You know, maybe live the story of forgiveness, but if somebody really ticks you off, bitterness is kind of fun. Maybe reject greed and, and all of that, but hey, like, you know, how much you're really supposed to give and help people. What story are we living? This is a strategy of the forces of evil that has not gone away. Have you seen the new Apple Vision Pro? Oh my gosh, what a great story. Have you seen this? Oh, it's amazing. It only costs 3,500 bucks and it turns you into Iron Man. It's fantastic. It reminds me of the people in, at Mars Hill uh, that Paul is talking to and the, the commentary in Acts is that they couldn't get enough of new things. New ideas. What story are you living? Along with culture comes comfort. Do you see that it starts with this dark, like Satan will destroy you? But also Satan will say, hey, you want to be comfortable? These are both insidious. At one point or another, you felt them both. So Nebuchadnezzar goes, bring me your best and brightest. And you know what? Give him the food from my table. And give him the wine that I've been drinking. Something tells me that was good. I bet they sat down at that table and went, oh, we don't have anything like this in Jerusalem. We get anything this good, we have to send it to Egypt. Comfort. Maybe comfort, maybe you would call it comfort and privilege. Bring them to the big city, give them the good stuff. This can be just as effective as destruction. Oh gosh, the temptation of comfort. Maybe just a little greed might make our lives better. Maybe just a little unforgiveness. Maybe just a little self. Maybe just a little self-righteousness. I'll be a Christian, but I'm going to be really arrogant and judgmental about it. Nom, nom, nom. <laughs> the temptation of privilege and pride. Do you remember the old American Express commercial? Membership has its privileges. Okay, look, anybody, anybody else get into debt when they were less than 20 years old? Okay, because I went to community college that first semester where I was getting one F and three W's. <laughs> Just killing it. Um, and I got something in the mail that was called a student visa. You can't get in trouble. It's like a $400 credit limit, right? And it's all this language like, you've earned it. Like, I have earned this. <laughs> I went to class four times this month. I feel like I have. And then you get some speakers and the thing gets a little, and they go, you know what? You're over your credit limit. We can help. 
we'll extend your credit limit. <laughs> just comfort, just privilege, just what you deserve. You deserve it. Praise the Lord for Tiffany in my life. <laughs> the temptation of what I deserve. So it runs the gamut. Satan's been around a while. The playbook has not changed. Destruction, discouragement, um, you know, dominance. Teach them put, them, put them in a story. Give the culture, make it opposed to God, but make it taste great, comfort. And then just flat out time. They were going to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were stand before the king. You know, just bring them to Babylon. And some of them will resist at first. Some of them at first will go, no, I'm not, you know, serving your dumb God. Just train them for three years. See what happens. I bet you in three years, most of them come around. You're going to say no to the culture every day for three years? A lot of people have made the point that this is about how long it takes you to get a college degree. And, you know, I'm not a reactionary kind of like I'm, I, I, you know, we've had kids at, at public institutions. Uh, you know, we have a Go Otters. We have a CSUMB grad. I don't think we have to... Christian education is wonderful, and going to a Christian college is great. Uh, it's not for everybody, um, um, but it does highlight that we have to stay connected to this story. That enough time disconnected from the story of the gospel and in the story of the world is dangerous for anybody. Uh, it's on the podcast. <laughs> Faithfulness is about years of trust. I wonder if one of the enemy's most effective strategies in our lives isn't just the drudgery of life. Have you felt that? That actually this is a pretty incredible adventure, but you get lured in to just the Incredible triteness of being. Sometimes it isn't destruction. Sometimes it's entropy. There's just boredom. It's unrealized dreams. It's a deep numbness that leaves us wandering from God. Just give them time. Lastly, and we'll talk about this mostly ne next week, but they were going to be educated for three years, and also the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Let me just get you started on that, and I'll talk about it more next week, but how you identify who you think you are is just everything. And we have a world that, you know, there's lots of, how do you even say that, lots of ink being spilled about identity, but it's all a smokescreen. The identity that matters are, is, are you a child of God or are you not? Is it your place in the family of God that informs your life? Or is it something else that informs your life? Man, bring these Jewish kids to Babylon and give them Babylonian names. Make them feel as comfortable as possible here. So I wonder, if I've, as I've been going through this, do you recognize any of it? 
Because of course, God is at work in your life. Hope, joy, peace, these are available in Him right now to all of us. But just as assuredly you have an enemy who has been attacking God's people since long time before we were born, the strategies haven't changed very much, and He is still active and trying to discourage, distract, dominate, destroy God's people. We no longer call the instrument of that wrath, that hate, Nebuchadnezzar. But we could give it names. So first, let's, not, let's acknowledge the fight and learn to recognize spiritual warfare as normative in our lives. You know, I, I, I hear people talk about like there's times of spiritual warfare in the life of the believer. Yes, there are times of spiritual warfare in the life of the believer. It's when you give your life to Jesus to when you die. Let's acknowledge that. Not be afraid of it, not in a weird way. But let's acknowledge that we have an enemy. And then let's stop blaming the human tools of evil. I'm not saying we're going to give free passes to people who do evil things. And I'm not saying we don't hold people accountable, but let's stop believing that people are the root of the problem. Because whoever you think is the root of the problem, whoever your favorite you know, news channel tells you is the root of the problem, they're not. Because if that guy dies, another one will pop up. Instead, when we feel the effects of evil, of temptation, of destruction, instead of going, it's their fault, it's their fault, it's their fault, let's be people of prayer and fasting. Let's be people who act like Daniel. And we'll talk about what he did next week. Let's learn to respond like him. So did you recognize any of that in your life? Are there places in your life where you need to say, man, I need to recognize the superiority of God in this aspect of my life, that things really are hard here, that I really do have an enemy, that my battle really is against powers and principalities and the forces of evil in the heavenly places, and I need to acknowledge that, and then I need to battle that by fully submitting myself to God, to trusting Him fully to knowing that it's not going to be okay because in this life we're going to win, but it's going to be okay because my identity is rooted in Christ. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. We're going to be okay. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this story. Lord, it's, it's refreshing to hear the playbook of the enemy just laid out there in Daniel 1 and just go, yeah, God, I've felt all of this stuff. Lord, would you teach us to trust you? Would you teach us to not freak out when we see evil around us, but instead to go, oh, there goes again. How can we respond with faithfulness to you? How can we be people of joy in the middle of it? How can we know that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords? Not only can we endure because you are faithful to us, but we can be effective, we can thrive, we can be on mission, we we can prove your greatness to people in this world as we stand faithfully for you. Lord, just like we're going to teach our kids this week in VBS, would you teach us to clothe ourselves in your truth, in your peace, in your hope, in your word. 
Lord, we love you. Thank you for a chance to gather this morning and, and lift your name up together. In Jesus' name, amen.